as a reminder, I just want to mention something to you. Every week, um, and you probably have received it, or if you haven't, we will certainly um, let you. Every week we have a study guide written. Uh, uh, we are we do that because we think that the more you read your Bible on your own, and then you discuss it with other believers, and then you hear it preached, and then uh, think through the applications of all of that, that it's good for you. And if you haven't really been able to experience that because of maybe just not having time or not making time, I should encourage you to do that. It, it will benefit, now listen, it will benefit you, it will benefit your family as you spend time in the Word, as you think upon the promises of God, the truth of God. It will benefit the church family as you sit down and you discuss with one another the truth of Scripture. It will benefit um, your ability to communicate the gospel to other people. It will benefit the world. I mean, all of those things happen when you make time to spend time in the Word, to come discuss with believers, to hear it preached, to seek to apply it to your life. All of that is helpful in that process. So I encourage you, make time to do that. Because I think one of the things is, um, you're going to remember, they say, about 10% of what I say, unless the Spirit of God just moves and helps you just completely retain it. And you can like repeat it afterwards. You're not going to remember as much. But if you'll follow the process we give you, you're going to get a lot more. And, and God will, will use that, I think, in a powerful way. So anyway, we're going to start an overview of Genesis this morning. If you would bow with me, we'll, we'll begin. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us uh, uh, your truth and that we can understand by your spirit uh, these things that are uh, ancient but that are true today. Lord, we know there's so much application that we can draw from uh, your word. And I just pray this morning that you would help us see so that we, we don't just gain knowledge, but that we would be transformed. And we just pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So as we start Genesis this morning and do an overview, uh, we're going to kind of chart a course for you, looking at kind of the big picture of what's taking place in Genesis this morning. For some people, it's going to be a review. For some of you, maybe this is the first time that you, you've maybe heard some of the stories, but never thought about how they fit together. All this is taking place. So I think it's just important to get that. If you're taking notes, you just kind of think about as we're going to move forward, we're going to give you the overview so it's going to move fast and we're going to kind of travel through and see it. Now, Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's, uh, it kind of has the idea of origins. It, 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 it's the origin of the world. It's, it's the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of the human race. It's the beginning of sin. It's the beginning of this people that God has chosen to save and that He, he will use through their line to save the whole world. It's the beginning of all these things. The world came into existence. Genesis is answering all those questions. All the qu big questions you have in your life are answered in Genesis. Like, who is God? It's answered in Genesis. Where do we come from? It's answered in Genesis. What is our purpose in this life? It's answered in Genesis. Why do we fail to live the life we were created to live? All of that is answered in Genesis. Now, what, what, and this is another question that kind of comes to that. Why is our relationship to our Creator, to one another, and to creation so messed up? All of that is answered in Genesis. And finally, what's God going to do about it? He doesn't have to do anything, but what does He choose to do about our sin, about our alienation from Him, from one another, and our, or really our alienation from creation? All of those things are answered in Genesis. So I think it's important just kind of see that. And you back up and say, good night. 
this answers things about your worldview, how you see and view everything. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to see just structurally, and this was in your study guide. There are four major events in Genesis 1 through 11. Creation, the fall, the flood, and the nations. Those four things, we're going to kind of travel through and see those this morning. Creation, fall, flood, nations. And then Genesis 12 through 50, there are four key people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And within Joseph's kind of deal, there's the 12 sons of Israel, we'd say. But just see those four. You see four there in the events, four major people, and you see that. Now, the last thing I'm going to kind of talk to you about this morning is the kingdom of God. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy says the kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. You get that? It's God's kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. I think that's critical because we're going to try to see how it fits in to understand. In Genesis, we talked about this a lot this morning, you see the pattern of that kingdom. What did God intend? How did God structure the world? You see in Genesis 3, the, the, the brokenness of that kingdom. And you, in the fall, and you see, okay, what happens to God's kingdom when man rebels? In Genesis 12, we see the promised kingdom. And the question is, how is God going to restore what's been broken? And we kind of see that begin to really, in Genesis 12, everything flows from that text in Genesis 12, 1-3. So all of that kind of helps you see and understand. Now, another thing is just, just to understand the big story, and then we'll kind of move into the text. The big story that's unfolding in Genesis is God is the creator of the universe. Man rebels against God's rule. God promises to restore man and, and bring restoration. And kind of the rest of Scripture is seeing that He's extending grace to His people in spite of their sin. That's kind of the storyline of Scripture. That's the storyline of Genesis. Okay, so turn to Genesis chapter 1 and let's, let's begin. We see kind of the pattern here. We see God's people are Adam and Eve at the very outset as we're going to unpack that. God's place, they're going to be placed in the Garden of Eden under God's rule and blessing. Basically, we see God's Word in these perfect relationships in this early portion. So we're going to start and look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We have to begin with God. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What we know is before anything was, God was. What we know of Scripture overarchingly is that God is infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. There is nothing. Uh, God has always been. He's always existed. And God reigns and rules over all things. And, and not only that, we, so He's outside of His creation. In the beginning, God, God exists, but He's outside of His creation. And then He creates the world. But He's also close to it. He's intimately tied to it. He is involved in His creation. We're going to see that as we move forward. Now, we looked at Revelation 4 a couple weeks ago. It says, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. And then later we'll see, and it's sustained by Him. There is this God in heaven who reigns over all things. He created and He sustains, and it's His. He owns it. Now, I just think that's important. Now, how does He create these, how did he create these things? Look at Genesis chapter 1. We see, and we looked again in our study guide, it was Genesis 1-3, and God said, verse 6, and God said, verse 9, and God said, 
verse 11, and God said, God speaks and things happen. When God speaks, it's not just that it came into existence, but it is sustained by His Word. He spoke it into existence and it continues to be sustained. It's important to see that. All that He's created reveals what to us? It shows His grandeur. It shows His his, um, his authority, it shows His power, it shows His majesty. All of those things seen as we see the created order and what God did. Now, as we look at that, again, we're doing an overview, so as you move forward, the last day we're going to see in Genesis 1.26 that God creates a unique creature, right? In verse 26, and I think it's important, again, we, we think about worldview a lot, but look at that. What does He tell us about us? It says in verse 26, Then God says, Let us make man in our image. What does that mean? I mean, that's a powerful statement. And after our own likeness, and look, and let them have dominion over all of these things. And so He's going to take and He's going to create everything, but then He's going to create man distinct from all other creatures created in the image of God. I remember one time I was meeting with a guy. He was a friend of mine. He was agnostic. And we were talking and, and some like moral issues came up on, on abortion and different things like that. And, and, and I, I, he was a very... Um, he, he, was, um, he really emphasized preserving the whole world and he wanted to preserve everything in it. But yet when it came to abortion, he had no desire to preserve man. And I looked at him I said, you know, if, if this happened to some uh, baby whale, you would throw a fit. But when you look at the ones created in the image of God, they're the crown of God's creation. They are unique and distinct from all other creatures. Man is greater in significance than the rest of creation. They are created in the image of God. They should be valued. There is something unbelievably marvelous about man created in the image of God. Now, I just want you to see just a couple of things. They're both structurally created in the image of God. One guy defined it that way, meaning that we are created in the image of God. We're able to have knowledge and understand and give that knowledge out and receive it. We can communicate, commune with God and with man in a very unique way. We are distinct. Another thing you see in that is that we are distinct. We are separate from all other creatures in a very unique way. And so that's kind of structurally we're different, but functionally, God didn't say to a horse like, "You go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it." He didn't say that because man was given a very distinct role as God's image bearer to restrain and control and guide and direct and oversee all of His creation. We are the stewards of God. He has given us that that role and that responsibility. Now listen, if you meet somebody that's lazy, they don't want to do anything with their life, they are rejecting what it means to be an image bearer. We are to be people who are active and useful and valuable and we are to be giving something. God has created us for a purpose. It's extremely important to see that. Another thing that we think about in this way, whenever you look at your life and you say, look at what I've done. Nobody creates anything out of nothing. God created the whole world out of nothing. He is really the only Creator. We take what He's created and do something with it, but it's His. 
He owns it. Everything in this world. Sometimes when a man thinks he's some kind of self-made man, he's a fool. Because his mind and his ability and his longings and his passions and his desires are all given by God. We are creatures created by God. It's important to know that. When you see that, it changes everything. And we are to be innovative. We are to be creative. And we are to oversee. And we are to be useful. And we are to be good stewards of all that God has given us. Whether that's children or a job or a home. It's God's. Your bank account is God's. In the end, you don't carry that with you. All that you've ever done, it's God's. He has allowed you to have it. He has given you gifts to use it. And it is God's. You answer to Him. He is the ruler of the universe. Now, He placed them in a garden. So it's just important to see we've got God's people that, that, that are now like stewarding a place. And God places them in a the garden. And it's a wonderful place. Some of you, have you ever had problems at work? Ever? Anything ever break? Or, or, or any relationships ever strained? All those things we see in work. But here's the deal. In Eden, it was wonderful to work. It would be fun to work there. Why? Because it's, it's, it's a place that God has made. It is good. It's very good. And, and when you would go out and, and work the ground, it would produce. It's a marvelous place to be. It was a, a place of complete blessing. It was a place that God had blessed. It was a place that God had made. Sometimes we get really tired as we work and we do this and do that and things don't turn out like we expect. In Eden, it was a wonderful place and all things happened as they should. Now, next thing we see, just look at Genesis 1.31. I think it's just important to see this in verse 31. It says, the Lord looks at everything that He created and He said, it's very good. It's very good. It's a marvelous thing. What God has made, it is good. And in Genesis 2.1, you'll notice here, it says that God rested. God, God had completed. It's not that God was tired and He's like, good night, I'm going to the recliner. It's not that. God had completed it. When He spoke it into existence, it was accomplished and it was done. And He could sit back and in a sense, He never gets back up again. He has created it and it is, it is very good. Everything about it. So man is living in this perfect world that God had created and all things were good. Now, that's kind of when we get started, right? But then we move forward in the story. And as you look at Genesis chapter 3, so turn there with me because we're going to kind of do an overview again. You look at Genesis chapter 3 and something happens. Sin enters into this story. This perfect creation, this perfect harmony with God and man, all of these things are destroyed. So notice what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, what do we see here? The serpent comes in to deceive, and what does he question? He is questioning God's Word. He is coming alongside and saying, did God really say get rid of all that? Kind of leads her in. The story unfolds. She said, God didn't say that. He said, we could eat of anything, but except for that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's crafty as he's moving in. And as he moves in, it's just a powerful thing. She's hearing him, and she's abandoning the Word of God. The knowledge of good and evil, it's kind of like this. God said, look, you get knowledge of good and evil from me. But what the serpent's saying is bypass God. Don't listen to God. Don't get God's God's knowledge. Don't gain all your insight from God. Turn away from God. Now, do you still hear that voice today? In our world that you live in, has that voice ever come? You ever look up and think someone is saying to you, listen, God's way is this way, but if I'm going to make this deal, I've got to abandon God's way. God's way is this way, but if I'm going to have this relationship, I've got to abandon God's way. God's way is for me to do this, but if I'm going to experience life as I want it to be, if I'm going to make myself happy, if I'm going to do this or do that or accomplish what I want with my kingdom, then I'm going to have to choose this way. The serpent is still saying that. The world system is still saying that. It is drawing you away from God. It is telling you to silence God. It is telling you to close the Word of God and push it out of your life so that you can experience life apart from God. So that you can get blessing apart from God. So that you can live apart from God. All of those things are seen even today. In an act of unbelief, she takes of the fruit. It's the lack of faith. Rather than trusting God, she is trusting her own thoughts and the thoughts of this great deceiver. She wants to gain knowledge and she throws off God. Now, what does that result in? And I think it's just important that you just see this. It's extremely important. We see spiritual death that takes place. And what you're going to see in the fall is man's relationship vertically to God is broken. Man's relationship horizontally to one another is broken. Man's relationship to creation is broken. I mean, I've been amazed this year at all of the catastrophes we have seen. I mean, even in the state of Texas, they say it's the worst on record ever. It's an amazing thing just with the drought. And you say, creation is against us. Creation is trying to destroy us. Creation is at war with us. And all of this is a result of the fall. All of this needs to be seen in light of that. Now, what takes place as a result of all those things? And I think it's just important that you see. In the midst of that, God does not immediately kill them. You remember when God shows up and they hide and and they put on little camouflage leaves, right? They kind of camo themselves. And God says, what are you doing? And then ultimately all this takes place. and, And then... You see God actually take a skin of an animal. I want you to turn there. We're just going to kind of see. Look at Genesis. Actually, let's look back just one more thing. In Genesis 3.15 and in Genesis 3.21, what we're going to see is the first thing, and just kind of backtrack just a moment, He's going to say to them, look, through your seed, the serpent's head's going to be crushed. And, And I think that's important to note that. And another thing that you see in Genesis 3.21 is that Adam and Eve received garments of skin, and it's kind of the first glimpse of seeing this. 
that God is going to do something on behalf of man through a substitute. Someone had to die in the place of the man. An animal died that day and covered man for all of his sins. It's important to note that throughout Scripture we're going to see a substitute coming over and over and over and over. Now, the other thing you see in Genesis 3.15 here is from your offspring. And we're going to see later that that offspring of the woman will come and Jesus will come and He is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we see that in Colossians unpacked. Now, so as a result of the fall, even in the midst of sin, God is saving. God is going to rescue. It's not going to come without a cost, but God is going to rescue His people. So, I want you to turn to Genesis 6 because the question kind of comes, how bad is this situation that man's in? I mean, really, is it that bad? Sometimes when I talk to somebody, I'm like, do you understand how radically depraved man is? Do you understand that he is completely depraved? That He is born in sin. He is a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. If you don't believe that, I want you to read the Bible and then I want you to read your newspaper. I want you to spend some time looking at our culture and looking at our world. If you don't believe the Bible, it's enough to pick up your paper or go to the newsstand. Whatever it may be, you see the brokenness of our condition. Now look at Genesis 6-5. And I just think it's important that you see that as we're moving ahead. The wickedness of man was great. Now look what it says. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. How bad is it? He's just a little broken. Is that, is that just a little broken? Is that just a, a small portion of man? It's messed up. I mean, he and God, it's just a, it's a little bit broken. Every intention of his heart. Some of you say, you know, some, have you ever reformed your behavior? Have you ever done something where you tried to stop doing this? I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit this. Or I'm going to quit that. And you try to, you almost kind of get your behavior uh, in, in check, but your heart's so messed up. You do the right acts, but your heart is so perverted. And you see it and you think, oh my goodness, if they could just see what's in my heart, people would never, ever want to be around me. The things that run through my mind. Because man at his very heart, he is broken. You argue with that, you're arguing with the Bible. Man is desperately wicked and he's broken. Ephesians 2 said we are dead in our trespasses and sins. He is completely corrupted by the fall. You are born by nature as a sinner at enmity with God and angry towards Him. That is where we are. If you don't believe that, you do not believe the Bible. Man is broken. And what we see in this is that in the midst of that, man deserves judgment. And you think, man, I can't believe, would God, would God just completely wipe out the human race? This judgment that we see in this portion of Scripture has nothing to compare to the greater judgment that's to come. It is a glimpse of the judgment of God in the future when He will destroy all things and make all things right. Now, God would be just in destroying you. Do you know that? If He is, It would be just for you to be condemned in hell for eternity. Just. Every one of you. 
by nature and by choice, it would be just. Even in your mother's womb, it would be just. So as you move forward, in Genesis chapter 6, as we're looking at that, verse 8, and again we see, now I want you to see this in light of what's taking place in Scripture, it says, but Noah, somebody read it this morning, found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's not that Noah wasn't corrupted by the fall. It's that God was gracious to Noah. Now what's going to happen later? We're not looking at all those verses, but in verse 9 following, we're going to see Noah walk with the Lord. But why does Noah walk with the Lord? How would he even know who the Lord was in a broken, fallen world? It's because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's because God worked on his behalf. It's because God would reveal himself to him. Noah wasn't this morally perfect person. He wasn't without sin. He did not not have a corrupt nature, but God graciously moved on behalf of Noah and he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God said, in the coming storm, I'm going to build an ark, Noah, through your work and we are going to shelter you from the coming judgment. You will be saved from the coming wrath of the storm. God is gracious to him in that and he moves forward in that and he rescues him. All men everywhere are condemned before God and yet God comes and he graciously does this and Noah responds as he walks by faith, step by step. For a hundred years he builds an ark. He is known as one who walks with the Lord. He is upright and just in his day. So we see sin and judgment and grace to His people. Now I just want you to see one more thing. Genesis 10, we speak of the nations. And in 10.1 and 10.32, you see Noah has some kids. By the way, if you want to know that Noah's not perfect, all you have to do is read the rest of the story. Noah gets drunk. Right? And his sons are as corrupt as, you know, as he is. There's things that go on. We see that. We know he's not a perfect man, but his pattern is to walk with the Lord and God has graciously saved him. But here's what happens. Noah's descendants are so messed up that ultimately his son, the son really that's going to be tied to uh, the, the history of the Scripture, his, they end up going to a place and they say, guess what, we're going to build a tower and we're going to build it up to the heavens and we're going to make a name that's great for ourselves. We're going to build our own kingdom. We're going to be like God. We're going to throw off God and we can be gods. And God scatters them. We see judgment again. But then in Genesis 12, so turn there. We're going to look there this morning. What we see is the promised kingdom where God's going to make a promise to Abraham and his descendants and He's going to give them a place called Canaan and He's going to, make, he's going to bless them and make them a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So let's just keep moving here. I know we've got to move forward. So I'm going to, less time here, I promise. We'll just kind of move forward step by step. But I want you to see this. In Genesis 12, He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land. Now listen, he is saying you leave, the, you leave that world. You abandon that world that you live in. You abandon that family. You abandon that place. You turn away from the, the paganism and the, the, the unrighteousness and all of the evil of man and you come with me. 
I'm going to rescue you. I am calling you. I have chosen you, Abraham, out of all the nations of the earth. I'm going to establish you as a nation. I am calling you out. You need to repent and turn. You are turning away from the old life. You are no longer tied to this life. You are on a new direction. You are turning away and you are going to follow me by faith. And Abraham follows the Lord. And you see him calling him out. Why is God gracious to Abraham? Is it because he's perfect? Is it because he's morally superior? Is it because he's the greatest man on earth? We don't see that. What we see in the storyline of Abraham is it, is it is peppered with sin. But God is calling him out so that he might be a blessing to all people. And we're going to see that as we move forward. And I think it's just important. Now what's he going to say? Your descendants are going to be as the stars of the sky. As the sand of the seashore. We're going to take you to a place flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to use your family to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I'm going to do this for you. I've chosen to do this for you. I'm making a promise to you. When you see God make the covenant with Abraham, guess what? When He does that, it's a unilateral covenant, meaning God's going to hold it true. Abraham's not strong enough. God will do it. And nothing will stop God. So we see over and over sin, judgment, and God be gracious. But listen to this. As you move forward in this text, we come to Isaac. And in Genesis 26, we're not going to read all of that this morning, but in Genesis chapter 26. You know what he says in verse 2 through 4? That promise I made to your father is a promise I'm making to you. I am promising you that I'm going to do what I said. Because when God makes a promise, He does not fail to fulfill it. He's moving forward and He's saying, Isaac, you're the son. You're the son of the promise. I'm going to make your name great and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And you look at Isaac's family and all the different things that go on with his sons and all this brokenness in this whole relationship. And you really, you come to his son Jacob and you can turn there just to want you to see it. And what we see in that text is just important. In Genesis 35 verse 9 through 14, Jacob's past is filled with things that make you, you can't believe it. You think, is this really God's people? I mean, why would God mess with Jacob of all the people? I would want to cash it in with him and start over again. Because Jacob's life is, some people call it the school of faith, because it's just this over and over evidences of his deceitfulness. And he's a deceiver. He deceives his brother. He deceives his father. He deceives his father-in-law. He just lives one life after another of deceiving people. And yet, in all of Jacob's rebellion, one time God comes to Jacob and he forever saves him. He forever rescues him. He grabs hold of him and he holds on to Jacob and crushes him. From that point on, Jacob leaves with a limp because he had met with God. And God had said, you are mine and you will be mine. And I'm going to bless you. And in all the nations of the earth will be blessed 
through you all the way through Genesis, the faithfulness of God in spite of the sinfulness of man. That's what we see. And so we see this to unpack. And now here's the thing. Jacob has some sons. And those sons, whoo. I mean, the first time I studied this, I thought, good. Now, I mean, these cats are as wild as he is. They take one of their own brothers and decide, we don't like him anymore. Let's sell him into slavery. We're not going to, well, they're going to kill him. But instead, let's just sell him into slavery. And they sell him into slavery for the price of like 30 pieces of silver. And they sell him so that he'll go to Egypt and somebody else can kill him. And so they do this, but there's a number of things. When you read about them, you think, good night. I mean, what's going on in all of this story? But I want you to turn to Genesis 47. And I want you to see what Jacob says at the end of his life. I just want you to see what's taking place. In Genesis 47, verse 8, and Pharaoh, now this is when Jacob and his family end up going to Egypt. They go there because of Joseph's uh, rise to power. When he went there as a slave, he, tur he turns into to one who's second to the king. But Genesis 47, he says, And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the year of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. I think we see here the evil in his life. He's looking back over his life. Look at Genesis 48, verse 15. And when he's blessing his son Joseph, really the sons of Joseph, you notice what he says. The God before whom my fathers walked. The fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. All along the way, God has been pursuing Jacob with goodness and mercy in spite of his sin. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. We see the angel of the Lord here rescuing Jacob. We, we see in his life, it's the life of one who has seen the marvelous grace of God. The God of the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is repeating that. So you go back into Genesis and you say we start with God creating the world. And then we see the world fall in complete brokenness. And we see the flood, the results of the fall, the coming judgment of God. And we see the nations established. And we see all this sin going on in that. And then we see God make a promise to Abraham and a promise to Isaac and a promise to Jacob. And he says, I'm going to do something about this broken condition. I'm going to restore this world. And all along the way, you see God being merciful. Really, in Joseph's story, as we conclude in this portion of Genesis, in Joseph's story, it's a story of God preserving the promise in spite of the sinful people whom He's promised to save. Did y'all know that? Y'all ever felt like that somebody had free reign to destroy your life. And in them doing that, as you looked at that, you could not see that behind all of that is God weaving this dark thread into the tapestry of your life to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. In the life of Joseph, his brothers destroyed his life. 
He went over into Egypt and he was a slave and condemned and went to jail and all of these things and their sin was so dark towards him. But God is weaving those things into his life to make him what he wants him to be so that he might accomplish his plan for his glory in this guy's life. Now look at Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. He's now seeing them and he is about to rescue them because of the providence of God. He says, I am your brother in verse five. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for look what it says. God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been two years and there's five more years. Verse seven. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now notice what he says. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The story of the Bible is that there is this holy God who has created all and that there is a sinful, rebellious people who reject His rule and then God intervenes. He shows up. And He says, I'm going to save you and rescue you from the wrath that you deserve. I'm doing this, not because you deserve it, but because I am gracious and merciful. I'm rescuing a people for Myself. And I'm going to not only use them, but I'm going to use them in a way that is so marvelous you will never imagine. I'm going to send one through them, through that line, the seed of Abraham that will bless all the nations of the earth. My promises are true. I will be faithful. I will accomplish what I have promised. The Scripture tells us, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for for all of the glorious things that He has done. We need to see that this morning. Genesis, there's a story, a broader story that's going on in Genesis and you see it in seed form. God is going to save a people through His Son. He is going to save them. He's going to come from that line and He will rescue a people for Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the One who crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the blessing to all the nations. Jesus is going to be the one who's going to come and reverse the curse. This is Jesus. And we see here in seed form all that's going to take place in the rest of Scripture. Could you preach the Gospel from Genesis? It's loaded with the Gospel. You understand? It is preaching to you. He is calling you. Trust. Repent and trust in the promise. Repent and trust in the One who's to come. Repent. And you're sitting here in the 21st century and you're looking back and you're saying the promise was fulfilled. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. Died on the cross for us. It was raised. And by His power, we can live. Turn to Him in repentance and faith. Some of you here this morning are believers struggling. And if you were really honest, which is hard to be, you would wonder, is God really faithful? 
Is God really working on my behalf? Will He really do something about what I'm facing today? The Scripture tells us in Genesis, He is the Creator, but He's also Redeemer. He is the One who created us and made us and did all these things, but He's also our Savior. And I would just say this morning, whatever is at war against you, all this battle, whether it's with a person, whether you seem to fear God, whether you are worried about creation, destroying your crops, whatever those things may be, there is a God who reigns over all things. And we know this, that nothing can separate us from His love. Romans 8 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because when God makes a promise, He keeps it. And He's promised that He will save a people for Himself. And He will do it. And Genesis reveals that to us. And hopefully this morning, as you think upon it, and whatever you're doing right now that you would see, with the eyes of faith, there is this great God who is both Creator and Redeemer, and we can trust Him. So I'm just going to pray for you as we conclude today. I'm just going to ask that God would do something on your behalf to allow you to see more clearly the glorious Gospel being unfolded to us in Genesis. Father, we just thank You. We thank You that You have created us. We thank You, Lord, that whenever we, in Adam, we rebelled, that You were merciful to save us. Lord, I just pray as we start and embark on the study of Genesis that we would see that over and over and over again, that in spite of our sin, in spite of us being undeserving, that You are a redeeming and saving God. That You extend mercy to Your people. That You call people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to rescue them. To save them. And we just praise You for that. We're so thankful for that. I just pray as we come to the Lord's Supper today that we would see again the marvelous Redeemer Christ who gave His life for us. It's in His name we pray. Amen.